Good morning, friends. Um, The reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, to chapter 2, verse 10. And if you'd like to, you can follow along on page 6 of your bulletin. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. The word of the Lord. First off, I want to acknowledge... um, that dear crying child, because um, there's no shame. 
And uh, I, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not saying so uh, to out the parent, and, and, and if that parent even knows that that's their child, um, we want to be a. <laughs> is it mine? Uh, we want to be a. Com- we intend to be a community where it is okay uh, to have crying children in our midst because that's what children do. And the truth is, some of y'all feel just like that child. You're just better at pretending, <laughs> right? So be more honest. Oh, maybe. Right? Um, and the truth is also, in our modern Western worship services, we're probably all a little too quiet in here anyway. Right? Uh, and, uh, and on that note, do want to welcome you. If you feel moved by God's Spirit at any point in any part of our service, let alone during the sermon, that you do feel welcomed to verbalize, vocalize, express an amen or a hallelujah or whatever words might express your heart. This is a communal event. It's a messy communal event, um, whether if we're crying with our children as God's children or crying out praises for our conviction. So either way, uh, welcome, and and we're glad to open God's Word together. Uh, Real briefly, I want to turn your attention to these cards that you'll also find in your bulletin, and we're doing this for the first four weeks of the fall kickoff period starting last week and continuing on this week. These are little summaries of the mission of our church. And what you'll find on one side with the the brown coloring is a a quick restatement of our church's vision and mission statement together uh, with on the other side, one focus on each of the four main elements of our mission statement. Today, this card focuses on our commitment to be a spiritually diverse community. And by that, we simply mean that we endeavor by God's grace to gather people from a range of spiritual backgrounds so that together we might be able to walk alongside our friends with different questions and doubts concerning the Christian faith. We are committed to walking with you if that's your story. And uh, we're glad to be able to do that. You have an explanation here of a little bit more of what that means And uh, so please read over that, especially if you're a member of the church, to get a refresher, and also uh, if you're new to our church so that you can understand who we are and what we're trying to become by God's grace. One more thing, since I'm not starting the sermon yet, might as well keep on going, Um, because I know I'm going to forget to do this, and I want to make sure to to identify this newlywed couple I see in the back here that... That snuck in, and I'm going to forget to point them out. So I'm going to, speaking of embarrassment, I'm going to, I am going to embarrass you guys with love. Uh, Oscar and Clara, right back from their wedding. Please stand up. Stand up so we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Please do go and congratulate the, the Mr. and the Mrs. later on. All right. Last week, we started our new study in the book of Galatians. Let's continue it. So let's first pray. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the community you're building in our midst. Uh, Whether if it's in life-changing moments like having children or getting married or getting a new job or uh, we're doing community, we're doing real life together, praying through surgeries and cancer and struggling through hardships and pain and But God, we also thank you that we're learning about the gospel. We're learning about your scripture 
not alone, not isolated, but in community. That you're blessing us by shared insights we have and the ways in which we can learn and digest and be transformed by your words in this church family. So do that now. And I come to you with all my weaknesses and my flaws. And not even primarily the limitations of my gifts, but the limitations of my faith, my character. So I, I come to you naked and poor and needy. And I ask that you would use this weak vessel, that you would help me uh, to be able to communicate something of the very words and the voice and the heart of God. And I pray in turn that you would lead your people here today to receive those words as though from the very mouth of God. We need you. Send your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was my junior year in college, and I began to go through sort of a little bit of a mini spiritual crisis. I'd gone to church for years, and at that time was even involved in a, a campus ministry, but I began to notice that when I looked out to other Christians that I knew, looked at their lives, looked at their manner, I knew I could tell that they had something that I didn't have. And I think it was joy. I knew it was because I didn't understand something essential about Jesus. I knew something was missing in my life, in my faith at the time, but I didn't know exactly what it was. And so I began to read the book of Romans, which was a task, but eventually became my favorite book of the Bible. And so all along during these couple of months, God was filling my heart with these rich words and concepts describing who Jesus was and what he had come to do for us, for me. God was filling my heart with these words and concepts, kind of like logs in a, in a fireplace, but I still needed something to help that catch fire because it hadn't yet until one day when after a, a rough week, uh, I believe it was that I was having relationship problems as often as the case in college. I threw myself upon my bed because I was just worn out, distressed, stressed, as maybe some of you feel even today. And I began to pray because I had nowhere else to turn and nowhere else to go. And I found myself in that time repeating a, a real simple prayer. It was really one line taken from Psalm 139. You might be familiar with it. Over and over again, you have searched me and you know me. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You have searched me and you know me. And that's when it hit me. You know me, God, every flaw. You know the truth about me, God, even those things that I so successfully hide from other people. You search me and you know me, my full story, even those parts that I daily edit out to make myself more presentable. You search me and you know me, my hypocrisy, my sin, the evil of my heart. You search me and you know me and yet you love me. How can it be? that God in Christ could love me so. You know me, and yet you call me your beloved son. 
And I found myself that day weeping and weeping and sobbing in my bed. Tears of relief, in fact, after those couple months of journeying through the gospel. Tears, finally, of joy. It actually felt like an immense burden was lifted off of me. Maybe some of you know what that feels like. You've gone through a similar kind of experience of God's grace breaking in. It just may have been the moment that evening in my dorm room, my junior year in college. It may have been the moment that I became a Christian. I'm not sure. The story is a meandering one. I could tell it to you in full later on if you're interested. Be happy to share. But I am sure of this, that it was the beginning of when the life-changing power of grace really became sweet to me, really began to kick in into the depths and the cracks of my soul in a new and a powerful way. That's just a little piece of my story, my story of understanding God's grace. I'm curious, and I'm sure you're curious as well, about each other. Friends, what's your story? What's your story? Maybe not the full-length version, maybe just a piece of it. Maybe it's a story that began years and years ago. Maybe it's a story that's just beginning now. A story that's still being written. In fact, all of our stories are still being written by God, by the very finger of God. His love, His mercy, His wooing words drawing you home. Will you come home? Will you tell your story of that homecoming? The Apostle Paul here in today's passage is sharing a little bit of his story, isn't he? It's sort of an autobiography with a purpose, his personal story. He's just started this letter to the churches in Galatia. That's a region in southern modern-day Turkey, a series of churches that just a few years prior, the Apostle Paul himself had labored to start up. Now he's writing back to them because he's seen the need to reteach to them what he's calling here and all throughout the letter, the gospel. That's a word that simply means good news. It refers to God's big announcement that he, through Jesus Christ, has done everything needed to make us right with God. That Jesus in his life and his death and his life all over again, his resurrection, accomplished everything Everything needed to make us acceptable and lovable to God. And he gives it to us, therefore, as a gift, which is his grace, just another word for gift, that we find all throughout the book of Galatians. And I said he is reteaching, retelling to the Christians there in Galatia this gospel story. And the reason he needs to do that is because false teachers have come in. People that have begun to tell a different story, a, a different way in which they are saying, you can get right with God. Uh, sure, the grace of God is great, but you got to add a little bit more to it with your good works. You need to uh, yeah, receive the work of Christ, but then also work hard yourself. Then God will bless you. Then God will love you. How have you done lately? Well, that is the measure according to which God will bless you and show you his favor. Which is why here in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks. In last week's reading and study, we saw this in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul said, I am astonished 
that you, Galatian Christians, are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And one of the ways these new teachers that had arrived were kind of throwing the Galatians into confusion was not only by challenging the gospel of grace that Paul had originally taught, but also by attacking his credentials, by questioning his authority as an apostle. That just means authoritative messenger of Jesus. They were saying he's not the real deal. He came later than all the other apostles. He's kind of an imposter. Don't trust him. So Paul's main point in this passage actually is found in the first two verses of this reading today. We'll read it again, verses 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then everything that comes after those two verses, from verse 13 all the way down to the very bottom, is simply proof or support, supporting arguments to this main thesis, this main point that Paul is trying to make. And so what we have is Paul telling his personal story and using that to demonstrate that the good news that he is preaching is not man-made, but rather from the very mind and heart of God. This is how he's trying to counter-argue against these false teachers. The gospel that I preach is not man-made, it's God's. God wrote it, God told it to me. Where does your gospel come from? So this is what we're going to look at all together. First, how Paul points us to the origin of the gospel that he preaches, the origin of the gospel, and then secondly, he talks about the life-changing power of the gospel. The life-changing power of the gospel. First, the origin of the gospel. Where did the gospel that Paul preaches come from? Well, his first argument is really simple. It's just this. It didn't come from me. Not my own ideas, not my own way of reasoning. He actually points out that I used to hate this gospel. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. And we saw this earlier this summer when we studied the book of Acts, where it tells us this very story, where Paul, formerly known as Saul, actually was a young rising star in the Jewish ancient faith, and he actually was a persecutor of the church, would find followers of Jesus, find ways to get them imprisoned, and in many cases, Killed because he was convinced that Jesus was one of many imposter messiahs, a fake and a fraud, and that all his followers were therefore religious heretics. 
worshiping a false god in a false way to God. So Paul sought to destroy them. He wasn't just sort of a nominal weekend religious person. He was, in fact, head of the class, zealous for my father's traditions. And so Paul is saying here, therefore, there's nothing in me personally or in my personal background, especially my religious background, that would naturally encourage me to suddenly preach the grace of Jesus as the true way to God. It just wouldn't be the case. There's nothing natural in me. Everything in me was pointing in the opposite direction. God had to intervene and put me on this path. It didn't come from me. Secondly, he says, the gospel I preached didn't come from me, but it also didn't come from anybody else either. Not from any other human being, only from Jesus. Paul makes it very clear in the second half of verse 16 that after his conversion, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. And then sentence after sentence is built up together to show that he did not actually consult any human being in order to arrive at what he's teaching about the gospel of God. Most especially, not the apostles. I did not go to the original messengers of Christ in order to learn it from them. Jesus gave it to me. Verse 24, he makes the argument that he had no extended contact with the apostles, and he, in fact, did not even go to the city of Jerusalem, which is where they were. And that's why, throughout that paragraph, we have all these geographical markers. He notes Arabia, Damascus, Syria, Cilicia. Why is he taking us on a Google, Google Maps little tour around the entire region? What's his point? I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go and learn this gospel from other human beings. I got it directly from Jesus. And only later on, he went to Jerusalem and only stayed there for 15 days, not enough time for his mind to be fundamentally changed about key things that he was already teaching. And when Paul did engage the gospel, the apostles, excuse me, he reminds us that they didn't contradict or correct Paul's ministry, but rather they affirmed it. You're right, Paul. We're on the same team. So in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled by the apostles to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this is something that we'll unpack more next week as the letter continues. But Paul is saying that all along I was teaching that you're not saved by the good things that you do for God, nor are you saved by adopting Jewish religious customs. And therefore, I could bring this same good news of God's grace to people who were not Jewish, Gentile people, all around the Mediterranean region. Why? Because you are not saved by moral victory, nor by cultural conformity. But you're given freedom by the grace of God. And Paul says here that all the other apostles agreed with him. They recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, verse 7. And verse 9, they recognized the grace given to me. In fact, he even says, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they recognized me as a peer. All of this 
Sentence after sentence and verse after verse is really just one long argument to build up one main point, which was, again, that the gospel that Paul taught the Galatians originally did not come from any other human source, not Paul himself, nor even the apostles. I learned it directly from Jesus when he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. Read about it in Acts 9. When he interrupted my life with his love and kindness. When he didn't crush me as I deserved, but rather reached out to me with mercy. Where he stopped me in my tracks, literally gave me a new way of grace, the true way of having a right relationship with God, which I now proclaim to you, the good news of God's grace. Let's apply this a little bit. What difference does any of this make to you and me? Let me ask you a question. Paul is talking about the origins of his gospel as being something rooted in God and God alone. It came from God, not any human being. Let me ask you, how do you, friends, how do you know? How do you know what you think you know about God? Where does your view of God come from? Because the only way that you can have confidence in that answer is if you know that it came from God himself. Recently, I paid a a visit to the dentist and they gave me bad news, and I won't get into the details, but they said, I'm sorry, there's a a complicated procedure that you're going to have to undergo. And and I said, okay, well, that's fine. But in the meanwhile, am I going to be okay? A little bit of pain, a little bit of discomfort, not too terrible. And the doctor said, "Uh, yeah, you're going to be okay. I said, well, for how long? He said, for a long time, a couple weeks, even longer, you're going to be just fine. And if I had in that moment delivered over my vulnerable mouth to him and said, well, are you sure? How do you know? What if he had said, well, I just have a hunch. Or what if he had said, well, I Googled it recently. And (laughs) if I said, well, how do you know my mouth is, how do you know that my jaw isn't going to fall? How do you know? And he said, it just feels right to me. (laughs) I would walk out of that office. Because you expect a certain degree of authority, objectivity, and expertise from your dentist. How much more when it comes to questions that are far more ultimate than the condition of my teeth? Questions like, is there life after death? Or what's the purpose for which we are here? Or how do I really atone for the real wrongs that I do? Or where did we come from? Or how do I know right from wrong? You see, most of us are perfectly fine saying the very opposite thing that Paul is claiming here. We say, I believe this, I believe that, because it feels right to me. It just feels right. And I'm usually right. Or we say, I like the idea. Or I say, it just makes most sense to me. Or we sometimes even say, well, because I read a lot of books about it. 
So we're putting some of our trust in other people. Sometimes it's because other people told me so. Maybe it's just the tradition I was raised in, my parents. And uh, let me be clear. Yes, it's true that God uses other people. God does use our rational minds as well. It's not wrong to think about things. It's certainly not wrong to talk to other people and to learn from them. Paul's not saying that the Christian faith or Christian theology can be lived out in isolation. In fact, you might have even have noticed In chapter 2, verse 2, here in this passage, Paul says that when he visited the apostles, what, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. What was he saying? Well, he's seeking accountability. He, He was saying, I didn't make this up, but I did want to confirm together, compare notes, and make sure we were all on the same page. How much more so we? We need each other in community. But but the point here is, what's your ultimate authority? What's the final grounds, the final basis upon which you find your beliefs rooted? Paul's argument here, this gospel is not man-made, it came from God. And that's what makes it worth banking your life on. Are you going to bank the meaning of life of your future, of the possibility of atoning for all of your wrongs upon an opinion, a human opinion that you and your buddies agreed upon at a bar over the weekend. Are you going to do that? Too many of us live our lives based on an extremely fragile framework of existence. I'm not saying it's easy to believe that the Bible really is from God or that this gospel is actually the inspired revelation of God. We can talk through that. That's not easy. But I do want to say that one of the values of being able to have this kind of confidence, that this gospel is not man-made or made up, what difference does it make? Well, when you really screw up and you hear a rumor that God forgives your sins, you know it's guaranteed. When God says that Jesus has paid for all of your sins because Jesus died in your place. And so God isn't going to punish you again a second time. Punishment has been paid. Justice has been satisfied. Then you can say, based on God's eternal authority, that if I've embraced Jesus and God says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus then I can believe that because that's not my opinion. That's not even a preacher's opinion. It's a fact that I need to bring against every other opinion of my own and be able to say with boldness of heart, will you, with boldness of heart, say, I am forgiven. And you can even Bring it to bear in contradiction against the evidence of your life and even of your heart. Because let's be honest, you're looking around at each other, at yourself, you're like, I really am pretty screwed up. I can say that. I really am. I really don't deserve God's forgiveness. And there really is a lot for him to forgive. Bring it against the evidence of your life and your heart And you are able to say, thus saith the Lord, I am clean. I am free. I am loved. I'm a son. 
I'm a daughter. A daughter, a son of a king. That's the difference this makes. Tibbet is say that this isn't my opinion or yours. This is a gospel that came from God. Secondly, it reminds us that grace, if it's not something that man made up, well, that makes sense because grace itself just goes against human nature. It's literally out of this world. I mean, think about it. What the gospel of grace tells us is that God wins our salvation by losing on a Roman cross. God gives us life by dying. He achieves power through powerlessness. He offers spiritual wealth by impoverishing himself in Christ. And those who receive this salvation in the Christian vision of the gospel are not the strong and the accomplished and respected, but rather those who admit that they're weak and lost and nobodies. In this gospel, to be low is to be high. And the way down in the gospel is the way up, to be exalted as ones in God's kingdom. And guess what? Nothing in this world is going to tell you that that's real but this God. Nothing in the world is going to tell you that God is a God of grace but this word and this gospel because everything else in our minds wants to believe the opposite, that we can achieve our way into God's kingdom, that God loves us more because we've done better, that the highest people in the world's eyes are the people that have highest standing in God's kingdom, that you can't be weak, you better lie and fake it, God only loves the strong. That's the world of gracelessness, of ungrace that we live in day to day. Philip Yancey, a Christian author and thinker, very helpfully wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, just a book cover to cover expounding the wonders of God's grace. I recommend it to you. He says this about the unusual nature of grace from nursery school onward. We are taught how to succeed in the world of ungrace. The early bird catches the worm. No pain, no gain. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Demand your rights. You get what you pay for. I know these rules well, Yancey writes, because I live by them. I work for what I earn. I like to win. I insist on my rights. I want people to get what they deserve. Nothing more, nothing less. Does it sound familiar? It's the typical meditation of our hearts, and it's what we're fed day in and day out. It's almost like we need to be daily reprogrammed by God's word that tells us this unusual story of a kingdom that's completely built upon a radically different principle, and it's called grace. And therefore, we should expect that it takes time to learn grace and to unlearn ungrace. To relearn all the anti-grace ways of living that are hardwired into us. We should expect it to take time. And so if you're just starting to look into the Christian faith, it takes time. Because it's so different though so life-changing as well. Even for those of you who are professing Christians, of course it takes time. To grow in grace, to have your heart and soul rewired by the reality that God gives us not just what we don't deserve, but better than we deserve. That's his grace. And guess what? No human being can make that up. 
No human being did because it's out of this world. Third application before we move on. Paul communicates all this through personal story. Have you shared your story recently? Have you shared your story recently? Please consider this week, again, whether if you're just starting a spiritual journey or if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, it can be a spiritually revitalizing activity to share a little piece of your story. Maybe like what I did in the very beginning of this sermon. Just some incident. It doesn't have to be the whole thing. Though you're welcome to do that as well. Maybe in your neighborhood group, your life group, mom's group. Maybe it's in casual conversation with people. Maybe even today over lunch. You can go around and say, hey, anyone interested in sharing something? Something that God did for you. Some way that God changed your life. Or maybe just a little step that brought you along or even brought you here today. We need to be doing more of this sharing of testimony in the life of our community. It keeps God's grace fresh and personal. It encourages us and it even creates praise and thanksgiving in the community. We see this in verse 24 when Paul says that all the different churches in Judea started hearing this report. The man who formerly persecuted us, what, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy? Paul says, and they praised God because of me. Share your story and they will praise God because of you. We will. We should. Tell your testimony, even little bits and pieces. Secondly, not just the origins of the gospel, but secondly, the life-changing power of the gospel. What does Paul say? He makes this case about the unique origins of the gospel, and we learn also then something about the gospel's power to change our lives, specifically through Christian conversion. How someone starts a new relationship with God. This is helpful not only for those of you that are getting to know Jesus for the first time, but also for those of you that are professing Christians. And very quickly, we're going to unpack one single verse where Paul shares his change in verse 15, where he says this, but God who, when, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might go up to Jerusalem. What do we learn quickly? First, we learn about God's power. Paul says that it's God who took the first step. God called me when God interrupted my life. God is the first mover and the main actor in Paul's story of transformation. In fact, even that first word, but, reminds us that that Paul's story is one of interruption. For some of you, you're feeling this. God is interrupting your life. Maybe you even feel annoyed that God seems to be knocking on your door. It's not a good time, God. I'm busy at work. Guess what? Hold on. God might be taking you for a wonderful ride. God called me. God is at work in me. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who transforms me. And you know what? What's so good about that good news? It's that the pressure is off. You don't have to feel like you're the primary person that has to figure everything out for you to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't mean that you don't need to read or think or pray or open your heart or talk to other people or study. Yes, it does require some applied effort, but underneath it all, Paul says, it's God who does the saving, God who does the opening of the mind, God who does the opening of the heart. So the pressure is off. You don't need to save yourself. You don't need to figure your way into the kingdom of God. Parents, those of you who are also parenting children, whether small children or whether older children, even in their teens, or maybe you who are teachers or caregivers of children as you watch them develop, guess what? God is at work in their life. Uh, the pressure is off of you as, as well. Sure, you're called to steward the child and their soul that's been given to you, entrusted to you. But God is the first mover, the first actor. God is their rescuer, not you. God is their redeemer and savior, not you. The pressure's off. Love them well, yes. Love them when, with tears. Persevere even through trial. But it's not ultimately up to you. That's good news. Secondly, not just God's power, but God's pursuit. Paul says, God was the one who set me apart from my mother's womb. There's an early love that Paul is pointing to. God didn't just suddenly change his mind about me. He's been loving me for a long time, pursuing me for decades, even ages. Do you understand how wonderful that is in communicating the grace of God? Paul is saying, God did not stand back and for the first 20-some years of my life, watch and see, is he going to be all, is he, how's he doing, how is she, oh, oh, that was bad, let's, let's rethink, no, before you were born, he loved you, before you had any opportunity to do right or wrong. To disqualify yourself or qualify yourself for his favor. God set his love upon you. That's how deep his love is, his kindness, his favor. From before my own birth set me apart from my mother's womb by his grace. God has been pursuing you and some of you feel his pursuing love, his kindness. God has been chasing after us for much longer than we often realize and even some of us don't realize how creative he's been. Do you hear him even now knocking at your door? It might be through that place of pain. It might be through that trial. It might be through that struggle. It might be through that success and joy God chases after us in amazing ways. Do you see his hand at work? This is why we want to create what we're calling a spiritually diverse community. We're here to support you. we're, We're here to walk with you. We're here to discover together with you what story God is writing in your life. We welcome you. We invite you. Thirdly, God's pleasure. God's pleasure Paul writes, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. God was pleased to change Paul's life, to save him. Uh, My wife, Paula, just over the weekend uh, got a new phone, a a big deal. This doesn't happen often for her. This was a big deal. Um, And so we're all excited. Um, I've already begun making fun of her to 
see how long she's going to leave that plastic covering on it um, <laughs> before she finally takes it off. It's going to be a long time, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Ask her about it later. Um, but of course, a new phone means a new phone contract and entering into one of those binding agreements that hopefully work out for you in terms of your minutes and price and all that sort of thing, but it's a two-year agreement, and sometimes if you're sort of emotionally claustrophobic, that feels like you're stuck. It feels a little threatening, right? You wish you could get out, because sometimes you realize maybe there's something better out there that you want, and yet you are quietly stuck. Some of us believe that God has entered into a phone contract with you. You believe that God is willing to love you and forgive you, but he sort of does it reluctantly with a begrudging heart, like he's stuck in one of those contracts. If he could only get out of it, he would, but I guess I'll forgive her again. I guess I'll have to love him well one more time where he is kind to you, but he kind of wishes he didn't have to be. Where he loves you, but it's only because he's in a binding contract. Guess what Paul says? God was pleased, pleased to love you. It's his delight to show favor to you in Christ. God is happy to forgive you. God is happy to call you my son, my daughter. It makes God happy to bring a morally ugly, broken sinner into his family and to call you his treasure. Can you believe that you can be a source of joy to the heart of the God of the universe? What a privilege we have that God has given to us as his children. Do you know God's pleasure? And lastly and finally, we'll close with this, God's propulsion. His propelling grace, pushing us out. Apostle Paul says that God revealed his son in me. Why? so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul says God was pleased to show him kindness. Why? So that I might share good news with other people. See, the gospel is a story of a God who left his home to bring home those who weren't home. And when that story becomes your story, you want to go out and bring more people home. The gospel pushes us outward in love towards other people, roommates and family members and neighbors and even enemies. It takes a miracle of grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul there wrote that Jesus died so that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for him and through him to live for other people. In other words, we're addicted to ourselves, and one thing that the grace of God does is it heals us from our self-centeredness. We actually start to notice others around us and to care for them. Do you know that sometimes you can embark on a spiritual journey that actually simply leaves you in a worsened but now baptized commitment to your self-centeredness? You can actually be more religious and more selfish at the same time. But one of the signs that you really get the grace of God, not just Christian religiosity, but the grace of God, is that it becomes your joy to love other people. Not just your duty, but your joy to love other people because it was God's joy to love you. And so you share the grace of God. You give to other people. 
You share your story. You share also with the poor, with the vulnerable. Did you notice the very last verse that we have in our passage where Paul says, all the apostles, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, the circumcised. In verse 10, he said, but all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. The grace of God propels us into the lives of those who have more outward needs as well, the more vulnerable. This is part and parcel with the power of the gospel. This is not a sideshow. The whole story of God's good news is he's always in the business of loving needy and vulnerable people, and that includes all of us. But some of us just have more outward, physical, material needs, and we're called to prioritize these dear friends, you and our neighbors. The gospel for the poor. God's power, God's pursuit, God's pleasure, his priority, his propulsion of our lives outward. This is the life-changing power of the gospel, the gospel whose origin is simply out of this world. Have you experienced it? Are you hungry to experience transformation like this? If you have, have you told anyone about it? Dear friends, we're just starting the study of the book of Galatians. Are you hungry for good news? Have you praised God because of this news? Let's worship him now for his grace. Let's pray. We love you for your grace. We're learning or relearning what it even means to be people changed by grace. We thank you, God, for giving us the gift of your son, Jesus. Change our community. Change our lives. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.